Welcome to the Table Leadership Podcast, where everyone is invited to pull up a seat, and all leaders have a voice to contribute to the conversation. We're glad you could join us today. And now, your host, Sian Edgerton. <laughs> the other, out of the rest of the choices, is the other one that doesn't have um, boxes. In, in okay. so. so this is your one option for a good, my one option. For a good audio-visual yeah. podcast. That's well, yes. So do you post the video of this or is it just how you're recording? I do on YouTube. Okay. Yeah, That's so cool. we have the audio podcast that goes out in all of the places. And then okay. uh, we have a YouTube channel where we post the video as well. Good to know. Um, yeah. And so I'll make sure that you get all of that stuff. When the time comes, I'll send you the links if you want to blast it. Um, and then we also put together a little... Um, like clip a little excerpt for social media, you know, to say, hey, this is our new podcast coming out. And so you'll get a copy of all of that stuff for your own benefit. All right. Well, why don't we dive in and start off just by having you introduce yourself um, to all of our listeners and just kind of let us know a little bit about who you are, where you're from, what you do, uh, whatever you feel like would be significant and pertinent for people to get to know your heart. Okay, sure thing. Um, I'm Bronwyn Lee. I'm originally from South Africa, uh, where I was born and raised, and I have been living in the States for 16 years now. It's uh, the longest now that I've ever lived in one place. Um, I started out my career thinking I would go into law, then went into marketing for a while, but I have landed up uh, wearing a number of different hats, both in ministry and in local community leadership. So my current roles include being a freelance writer and a a write-at-home mom because I'm still the person um, on the PTA (laughs) and coordinating committees and responding to the scout emails and the food drives and doing the homework. But I am also a part-time pastor at my local church and I am the editor and curator of an online ministry resource um, for a couple of hours a week. So lots of different hats Mm -hmm. Uh, and most recently um, a published author. So that's been a fun journey. That's awesome. Yeah. And we'll definitely talk about that. Um, what is the the online resource that you were just mentioning and referring to? What is that that you're part of? Okay, so I work with Propel Women, uh, a women's ministry headed up by Christine Kane. When we work to equip and empower women, help them find their passion, purpose, and potential. The area that I work in is heading up Propel Sophia, which is one of our um, two weekly articles that we do. And what Propel Sophia um, does is its emphasis. Sophia is the Greek word for wisdom. And we want to give worked examples of awesome women explaining how God's word is at work in their world and sharing um, their how-to, like boots on the ground application of faith in practice. What does it look like in leadership? What does it look like? in finances? What does it look like in relational decision-making? And they're not just telling us the answer of how we should do this, but explaining their reasoning so we can learn from other people's process. I really love it. I think it's a great resource. That's awesome. And if somebody wanted to get connected with that, where would be the best place for them to go? Propelwoman.org. Yeah. Okay. There's, a, there's a weekly newsletter that Propel Woman set, uh, sends out and every week's articles are tagged at the bottom of every newsletter. Um, it's It's packed full of content. It's good stuff. Perfect. Okay. And we'll include that in the show notes too, for everyone that's listening, who's interested. Um, we'll make sure we include a link for that. And so you can go to the show notes and click right over to propelwomen.org and get all sorts of great stuff. I'm really familiar with the work that Propel does and I've followed it for years and I love all the resources and content that you guys put out. So um, it's exciting stuff. 
It is. It really is. And so um, you mentioned that you've been in the U.S. for 16 years now. What originally brought you over? Uh, I married a guy. How many stories start like that? Um, (laughs) (laughs) I was doing ministry in South Africa. Um, I met a boy and Mm -hmm. he said he wanted to do his Ph.D., and then uh, it turned out his PhD was going to be a continuation of work that he'd done at UC Berkeley. And so we moved to California. Um, and I thought we would just be here for three to five years while he finished that up. But nope, 15, 16 years and three children later, um, God is full of surprises. Yes, he is. <laughs> <laughs> and so how often do you get to go back home? Um, it's really far to go back. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. and packing children it's really expensive so not as often as we would like Mm -hmm. but I would say we we have probably been able to connect in person with our family every 18 months to two years Mm -hmm. a lot of our family don't actually live in South Africa anymore Um, we have family in Europe and family in Australia and so sometimes they've come to see us or see us or sometimes we've uh, met at some other place Um, yeah as everybody gets very very global and scattered yeah. The great thing about being an adult, though, is it's um, we've been at the ages where babies are being born and people are getting married, and that gives you a really good excuse to go and hang out with people. Exactly. And everybody will be together because the cousin's getting married, and that's been fun. Right. That's great. Yeah. My family is super global as well. And that was one of the the first points that you and I connected on um, learning community when we met was, you know, I said, oh my gosh, I know your accent. My family lived in South Africa for a while and we got to go and visit um, multiple times and just absolutely fell in love. And I don't know, obviously you lived there for so long, so it might you feel a little different, but at least from the few times that we were in South Africa and and mainly in the Cape Town area, we have loved living in Northern California because Mike and I both say all the time, this feels like the closest thing climate wise to South Africa Mm -hmm. that we've ever experienced. And, you know, it's, it's beautiful. We've kind of got the rolling Hills, but we're also on the water. And so living in Northern California, I think for us is about as close to South Africa as it gets. Cause we absolutely. Yep certainly as close to Cape Town there's a lot of of overlap I remember driving down highway one for the first time sort of south of San Francisco Uh thinking oh this is eerie this is eerie this is just like this very famous drive called Chapman's Peak driving Cape Town thinking wow yeah it feels just like it doesn't it it? Mm -hmm. yeah so we we love that every time we went to to Cape Town we just kept praying like look there's got to be some reason for us to live in South Africa (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that reason for you us for you to send us here and, and then he sent us to northern california so this is our this your is your life's our, not finished yet you may right. still end up there there's still time i will absolutely receive that prophetic word in faith for sure. <laughs> <laughs> all right so um and this so now i'm really curious to hear what you have to say to the next question i have which is kind of my icebreaker that i ask to everyone because i have two great passions in life food and leadership And um, so the question I always ask is if we were gathering a group of leaders around a table to pour into them and invest in them, um, and we were actually live and in person before we actually got to the good leadership stuff, what would you be feeding us? Ice cream. (laughs) That is definitely the first time that I got that response. Okay. Why ice cream? We make it. We make homemade ice cream. Yeah, it was something we got into. My husband has become very interested in meat and smoked meat and pulled pork. And so he would definitely be doing something fancy on the barbecue with, yeah, 
great carnitas and he's been making bacon lately. Okay. Just, you know, smoking it from scratch. That's what he would be doing. What I would be doing is taking care of the ice cream. We bought an ice cream maker. It was like a summer bucket list thing a couple of years. We borrowed somebody's ice cream machine and we thought, let's try this. And it became just a thing, a thing that we were doing. Um, and, and it's now become one of the things we're known for. Like this is, we're the house with ice cream. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I love it. Yep. That's definitely a first. The ice cream answer is a first. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I feel like this is now the, it would give my children the impetus to get into leadership when I tell them guys. That's right. You'll get more ice cream. Ice and cream the beautiful thing cream. about making ice cream at home by yourself is that you can make, um, make things for people who wouldn't ordinarily have it. I can make mm. sugar-free ice cream. I can make dairy-free ice cream. It's actually, it has given us the freedom, the freedom to include a bunch of people who always have to skip dessert. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I love it. I definitely want to sit at your leadership table now. Mm -hmm. For sure. <laughs> okay. So then once we actually get down to the, the good stuff, which obviously includes the ice cream, because let's face it, that's good stuff. Um, what is it that you feel like in this season that you bring to the leadership table? That's a great question. Um, I would say two things. One of them is just uh, a very broad variety of um, cultural and ecumenical experience. I have at this point, not because I was church hopping, but just because life has hopped me around. I've uh, been a kid who was in Catholic school, in a charismatic church, in a Methodist youth group, in a very reformed college ministry, uh, who went to an Anglican seminary, who works for a Baptist church and now serves on a, like, a multi, uh, multicultural and multi-church um, ministry. And having worshipped and taught in multiple different countries at this point there's something really cool about seeing different expressions of faith all over the world and seeing what's the same mm -hmm. uh, which is deeply comforting that both over time and space God has been at work in his church uh, that's a really great comfort to continue to offer people um, and also to see how things are different which helps me to encourage people to hold things a little bit more loosely mm -hmm. um, you know it's the whole potted plant analogy like you bring someone a potted plant you need we need to know which is the, the the plant which is the life and which is the packaging it comes in and i think that the cultural edge allows me to to say well that part's the gospel the plant and the pot maybe maybe there there are other ways that you can package this mm -hmm. so that's the one thing much more recently though i think the thing that i bring to the table is a conversation about how men and women do leadership together because I've been thinking about that, not just as a woman at the table and how do I use my voice and is it okay for me to be at the, at the table? Because uh, those answers differ depending on your church context or your leadership context. And we have self-doubt and we self-select out or other people, you know, will mansplain me at the table. I don't like that. Um, <laughs> and, and communities suffer when not all voices are heard. Um, but then what does it look like if we are, um, if we are people of faith, to lead with integrity and to include men and women in that conversation in a way that honors everybody's voices. And I have been increasingly thinking about what that looks like, particularly from a family point of view. If, if we are in a particularly Christian context, then we need to function like brothers and sisters with one another, and then everybody gets to talk at the table. You right. know, like brothers and sisters all get to participate in the family meal. 
mm-hmm. um, and we all get to cheer one another on. And I'm interested in encouraging that mindset, which is less business-like and more everybody belongs and gets to share their highs and lows or their ideas or whatever. Um, and that's a, that is actually a leadership thing. That's not just a, a belonging and participation thing, but it's a way of looking at um, everyone's right to be there and valuing their voice. Mm, that's so good. I have I have so many questions, and, and, so, <laughs> and so we're we're just going to process through some of them. So I want to go back to you talked about how you have this diversity of experience, and and I loved as you're listing off all of the different um, expressions of faith that you've kind of experienced throughout your life. You talked about how what's comforting is seeing what's the same. Mm-hmm. You know when you're when you're operating cross culturally and also cross denominationally. What are some of those things that you have noticed that kind of no matter where you go, no matter who you're worshiping with, these are some of the things that are the same and it's just comforting. What what are just a couple of those? I think realizing that people pray all over the world mm-hmm. uh, reminds me that God hears all over the world. Mm-hmm. And that is comforting for me to know that my prayers, like I have family overseas and, and causes that I care about that I physically, literally can do nothing about. But having worshipped in that, those communities, I know that God is there and that he's listening and that I can pray here and he will act there um, and that he is powerful and able to do those things. So it's really uh, great to remember that, you know, and this was the problem that, the, that Israel ran into in the Old Testament is they kept on thinking that God was a territorial God mm-hmm. and that he would just work in Israel. You know, but that if you traveled around, you needed somewhere else. And the big lesson of the whole exile is that they landed up in Babylon and God is like, hey, I'm God here too. Look, <laughs> let me send you some visions to show you that I'm here. And so that's one of the things that I think travel does is it reminds me that God is global. Um, the other thing is that Jesus saves. He really does. And that there might be different uh, ways that we invite people into faith, you know, from catechisms um, and very formal teaching to mass rallies where we invite people into tearful altar calls and in a way the method you know or you could be in the middle east and people have jesus come to them a dream and they seek out a safe person to tell them the story um god is so creative in the way that he calls people to himself um, and it's the same salvation Mm -hmm. uh, everywhere we go i love that those two things are true that's so good i love that and so then on the flip side of that um when we talk about the differences and oh my goodness there's so many differences and so many things. And, and, and unfortunately, you know, oftentimes those differences can be so divisive and in, instead right. of, you know, uniting us, what is it? I won't ask, you know, what those differences are. Cause I think we all know, you know, between cultures, between denominations, what some of the differences are, the stakes and the ground that unfortunately, you know, we kind of the Hills that we tend to live and die on when really it, it doesn't matter that much um, because you have such this wide array of experience and because you do uh, worship with and teach to and relate with and lead with people from so many different expressions, what is it that you've learned about um, making space for that? What wisdom Mm -hmm. can you offer in just making space for those differences and and still operating from a place of unity and love? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, I think that if I was to choose one thing, it would have to do with language. Now, part of this is because I'm a word nerd. So Mm -hmm. I notice these things, but it is probably a thread that I've noticed throughout. So one of them is that I think when we're trying to parse truth and figure out uh, 
particularly when things feel threatening or under debate, one of the ways that we protect uh, the gospel or protect orthodoxy is that we become very particular about which words are used. They're like markers of who's in and who's out. Are you this type of Baptist? Are you that type? Do you believe this? Do you believe that? And, um, and, and if people say the wrong word or if they don't say the word that we were hoping that they would say, we're a little bit, we have question marks about their faith. Um, and I think one of the things that travel has made me realize is that every little culture has their uh, theological safe words. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can hold mine a little bit more loosely because now I've lived in enough communities with that have been theologically safe, but had different words to realize that that there's variety and people are still holding to the gospel. At the same time, as someone who is um, trying to speak and do ministry in a broader community than just my own, that also means I must be very careful about language. Um, And that in my desire to be clear and specific, um, I need to choose words that aren't to the best of my knowledge, triggering to certain communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of that means testing your words with a number of different hearers and saying, how does this sound to you when I say this? Does this come across as concerning? Um, and trying to, to be as specific and as clear and as broad uh, so that we are not raising flags for people with our language unnecessarily. We do a lot of this um, with online writing. And leadership is actually one of the things that we want to be careful about because there are a number of people who don't self-identify as leaders because they live in cultures where they haven't been allowed to be leaders or that's seen as um, grasping power or feels um, disingenuous. But they're happy with influence. They realize they have influence even if they don't have power. And so choosing when and where we use those words so that we are still equipping people um, has been an interesting thing to think about. That's really interesting. And I love, I'm a word nerd too. And so I just love that idea about language and the words that we use and how they can be triggering. And I'm just thinking about some of the different experiences that I've had in the past in my leadership and some of the different churches that I've been part of, even just here in the U.S., you know, not even going to kind of the the global church um, and how much humility it requires to be able to say, I love you so much and I care enough about you that I am going to be willing to, like you said, hold loosely or lay down some of the things that I may feel very strongly and passionate and even excited about because I want you to hear my heart more than you hear my personal theology or my denomination or my culture. I want you to hear the heart of God more than anything else. Yeah, that's where the fruit of the Spirit carries over, because no matter what words you're using, uh, we can tell when people are being kind and gentle and self-controlled and patient with us. Um, Those things translate culturally every time. Yeah. For someone who maybe has a very local context, who doesn't have the opportunity um, to maybe do as much traveling, whether it's globally or or even just within their own country. For someone who has a local context, but who says, I still have a heart for this, and I still want to be unifying, and I want to be honoring, and I want to hold space for, you know, what they might define as the other. What are some of the ways that we can enter into that, even just in 
our local context? How do we kind of establish a broader, more global worldview and understanding of faith and, and leadership and all of these things um, when we still have a very local context? Oh, that's a, that's a superb question. Um, most of my work is in a really local context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm on the pastoral staff of my local church and a leader in my local home group. And so as far as they're concerned, uh, my national writing doesn't exist. <laughs> like, well, life is, is lived with real people who we bump into in the grocery store and uh, like snag their parking spots in the park <laughs> at the local strip mall. So it's, it does feel very local that way. Um, I think that moving towards an idea that our communities are, are large families um, does a lot of work in this regard because it allows us to to see our connectedness to people beyond our nuclear families and it gives us a tone of voice uh, that we speak to one another around. Um, and all of us, even if we're, you know, have lived in one town all of our lives, have have cousins and family reunions and we understand the idea of um, family that we're connected to even if we don't live in the same city and then you might get together all at Thanksgiving but there's kind of a, a gentleness in one's heart towards your cousins that you only see once every 10 years one you know once a year or once every 10 years um, and even if you don't do day-to-day life with them you're still aware that they're part of the family and I think that when we move into more ministry context to that kind of idea this is my local family but I'm part of a much bigger family with whom I share history and I share a father and I share a purpose um, can give us just a tenderness of spirit. Mm, I love that phrase, the tenderness of spirit. That's, oh my goodness. I feel like if there's one thing that our world and our culture and our leadership probably needs a lot more of right now, it's it's just that, a tenderness of spirit. That's really beautiful. Um, you're obviously a wordsmith. I love the way that you use words and language. Um, it's just, it's beautiful and it's poetic and I love it. Um, one of the other, speaking of words, one of the other words that you use, so you talked about this kind of global experience that you have. Um, and then you also talked about the other thing you bring to the table is the, the relationship between, you know, men and women and how we can lead together. And you use the phrase mansplaining. When, when someone mansplains you. And I think it's really important for everyone to understand what that is. So can you uh, explain and describe for us what mansplaining is? Oh man, I feel like I'm walking into a, stepping on a landmine here. Okay, so uh, in my understanding with no prep and not reading from a dictionary, I understand uh, mansplaining to be that situation where a woman says something and it either doesn't get noticed, recognized or acknowledged to, to move the um, conversation forward. And then next thing, a guy in the room, usually meaning well, says the same thing and everybody goes, oh, that's great. As if the woman needed to be explained, as if she needed subtitles. Um, it happens all the time. I mean, I, I tease my husband when he does it. <laughs> And he, he's being helpful, but uh, at, at much more serious and egregious levels, I think that that can be one of the things that stops women from participating in meetings because they think, I literally just said that. Am I, can you hear me? Do I need to do a sound check on my voice? <laughs> yeah. And so, and, and absolutely. And I, and I think, I love what you said too, that it's, you know, often with good intention. Um, it's not always coming from 
a negative place internally. But I think it's one of those things that we can often be really blind to. And when we say, hey, we want diversity in our team, we want to affirm and honor women and their voices in leadership, I think a lot of times we don't really know how to do that. We don't know what that actually looks like. And oftentimes, uh, even when women do have a seat and a voice at the table, they're still entering a very, um, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but a very male-dominated atmosphere and conversation. It's been oftentimes very much, um, it's, it's only been men. And so it's set up for men. And so there's, there's a difference between equality and equity. And I think, you know, we give people a seat and a voice at the table and say, Hey, we're, we're honoring equality and we're affirming that. And yet we're not actually giving equity, which means, you know, we're not dismantling the entire, um, atmosphere or establishment in order to actually rebuild it with women as key players and key voices. And so it's really easy for these situations to happen, for mansplaining to occur. What are some of the things um, that women can do? I want to ask, you know, both. What are some of the things that women can do to um, establish their voice and to be heard in, in a way that is, you know, honoring of everyone that's around them? And how can they really own uh, their leadership and the seat that they've been given at the table? And then the other question is, how do the men in the room be aware of what it requires for a woman to actually have a voice that's heard? How can we both kind of men and women alike um, be part of building that equity? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to answer those backwards. Okay. I think that I'm seeing some men just really do this very beautifully Mm -hmm. in my own context Mm -hmm. um, of making it a point to ask the women to engage, to say, we haven't heard from Joan at the table. What do you think? Um, To make sure that someone doesn't interrupt them, uh, to defer to them sometimes, because there can just be cultural ways of being at a table where men are quick to jump in and sometimes many women will hold back. And so men holding space is a beautiful way that I've seen that done and actually inviting or soliciting feedback, making sure that they're heard um, at the meeting. There are practical things that go uh, along with that as well, you know, arranging meetings in places and times that are accessible um, for women who are often juggling a lot of things, I think goes along with that. And I'm seeing some really great examples in our communities of, of my brothers saying, hey, you know, don't speak, don't speak to her like that. <laughs> she was talking. Please don't interrupt. They do finish. And I think that that's great. So lots of examples of men passing the mic. Yeah. What women, I think could be better at doing is when someone passes them the mic actually taking it and Mm -hmm. speaking into it Mm -hmm. Um, and one of the things I've noticed in myself and I don't know where this came from but I along with many other women do this is that we have a habit um, or a tendency to discredit what we're saying before we say it we say well I just have this thought or if I could just add one thing or I hope I'm not repeating myself but um, well I'm sorry I'm sorry if you know what it and we, we qualify what we're going to say. We put just in front mm-hmm. of, um, and it minimizes what we're going to say before it comes out of our mouths. And I am trying really hard to train myself out of the habit of doing that and to encourage other women not to, do, not to say that. Because, or, or we even, it's as simple as, well, I think that, or in my opinion, this, where what they're stating often is a fact. 
it's a fact that this is happening, not just an opinion that I think that this is the situation. This is the situation. And so being aware of my ability to sometimes um, qualify or hold back or diminish what I'm going to say, uh, like that's uh, not the guys at the, at the table's fault if they treated it just as a mere opinion, if I stated it as a mere opinion. <laughs> you know, so it's like taking your own, your own stuff seriously. Um, and then there are times of just um, leaning into and being encouraged that the different capacities that we bring, the different smarts that we bring to the table matter, that there's intuitive wisdom, that there's temporal wisdom of knowing sometimes the timing of a situation, um, of spatial wisdom, like all of those voices actually matter. And, and realizing that those are um, competencies that might be hidden um, and not just natural talents behind us, but actually that those are strengths that we bring to the table. And education is really helpful this way. Um, Irini Fumbro has been doing some great work on different multiple intelligences. It's so, so exciting to me in terms of empowering women in leadership because they are smart often, women are smart and men, in so many ways that aren't um, often recognized. And then realizing, oh, this is actually a gift. This is a strength. I will take that mic. I have something to say. Um, is part of the capacity building. Yeah. Are, is there a particular resource that you might recommend for somebody who says, gosh, I'd really love to dig into this a little bit more. This feels very uh, relevant for me right now. I'll send you the link in the show notes. I can't uh, tell, it, tell it to you on, yeah, it's, it, but it's multiple intelligences. Okay. And actually I have a whole um, Propel Sophia series coming out with her on this in, in the next couple of months. So oh, okay. um, we'll have links to that too. That's great. The timing is perfect. Yeah, we'll link all of that in the show notes because I think that could be so helpful and just resonate with with so many leaders, men and women alike, who are saying, gosh, I really do want to honor and affirm my brothers and sisters and, and see us working together. And so you mentioned that being a huge part of your uh, passion and experience right now. Does that play into the book that you have coming out? Yes, it does. Um, my, my book is called Beyond Awkward Side Hugs. And it is about living as Christian brothers and sisters in a sex-crazed world. Mm-hmm. And my book is really for church communities, uh, which includes leaders, but not is not exclusive to leaders. I think when you're talking about men and women in leadership, you're not just dealing with male-female dynamics. You're also dealing with power dynamics. And that's a whole different matrix mm-hmm. of how we relate to one another. But this is just the general, can men and women be friends? Uh, when you get married, how does that change the way that you deal with the men and women around you. If you're dating, uh, how does that change the way that you approach church community? And I just um, have observed so much fear in the States uh, and, in, and, and I guess beyond, but particularly in the States of, of people thinking, gosh, uh, things could really go wrong between men and women, so we should just stay away from one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's all sorts of the Me Too movement and the Church Too movement and marital infidelity and relationships are being broken and there are sexual predators in the church and it's just safer to keep everyone apart mm-hmm. um, kind of as a response. And it is great for us to be aware of the dangers of sin. That's important. Uh, we don't want to be blasé about our weakness. But at the same time, withdrawing from community and siloing us is not living as the family that God called us to be. And so this book is about what does it mean for us to really think about functioning as a family? Because we don't just stop talking to our brothers. 
<laughs> you know, there's time for a girl's day and there's time for a guy's day, but then we all need to get back together around the table and like, get on with the family business. And so what does that look like in our church contexts? That's what the book's about. I love that. What really, and I know you mentioned some of what you've seen, especially in the U.S. with what's happening. Was that kind of the, the inspiration or what really brought you to say, you know what, this is the book that I need to write right now? <laughs> uh, it was actually other people that said to me, you need to write this book rather than me thinking it was something. I, my husband and I have been involved in college ministry. I, I've been involved with women's ministry and pastoral ministry, but we together have done college ministry, youth ministry, and then young adults ministry for the you know last 20 years. And we have had, oh boy, at this point, hundreds of people come through our house and they all want to talk about relationships. Mm-hmm. And they, <laughs> they have questions about dating and being engaged and being married and uh this person is in my life and is sending me texts and should I respond to them? And this is what's happening with my husband and how should I respond? And it has become, it just became a theme over the years of me thinking, gosh, we've got to have better, better answers for people than just don't, don't talk about sex. Don't talk about sexuality. Just like it almost, I I realized over the years that there were just so many messages people were getting that was like, uh, when it comes to sex, don't. Mm-hmm. Like your sole job in interacting with the other sex is to find a spouse. Then you find that spouse. And then basically you never talk to members of the other sex again. That is just like the safest way to do it. Like you find the one so that you, and then you get married so that you don't burn. And then you shun everybody else <laughs> because that keeps relationships and community safe. And, um, and that's really an isolating way to live. I mean, yeah. God has more more purpose for us than marriage. Mm-hmm. Many, many people in the church don't marry, and we still have to work with the men and women around us. But if we have this hypersexualized way of thinking that the only uh, – because this is the subtext, right? The subtext is uh, whenever men and women interact, there's always going to be sexual tension. Mm-hmm. That's like the Freudian subtext of it. It's what we see in movies and TV and songs, guy meets girl, and then it's really just a question of time and either they get together and everybody's excited or they get together and everything falls apart. But what's the same in that narrative is that we're assuming that there's only way that one, one way that men and women can be together and that's with explosive chemistry, you know, either good fireworks or bad TNT. And, and I reject that just with more people coming into my house, I thought, no, God has given us a bunch of ways to be men and women that doesn't involve getting naked. Uh, How about the fact that he calls us brothers and sisters? Like we can just do a whole bunch of life and community and love and leadership and partnership with our clothes on as men and women around. God has actually given us in the scripture, a framework for, for living this life. Yeah. Motivated by love, not by fear of going thing, you know, things going wrong. And so I had started out, you know, just kind of being um, zealous on behalf of all of the brokenhearted and confused people that were coming through my house and thinking, dang it, did nobody ever tell you that you could, you know, talk to this girl that you like because she's your sister. You don't have to date her. Like you could just talk to her and it would be fine. Um, so I was kind of had this holy jealousy about writing it, but the more I got to write it, I thought, no, God is inviting us into something here. He calls us his family. He calls us his children. He addresses us as the Adelphoi of Christ. We are brothers and sisters together. All of the ethical instructions in the New Testament are not just written to like individual believers. They're written to families. And we've just done so little 
thinking about what it means to belong to one another as his children. Um, and I think it really changes the way that I felt about men and women because in the church, because we all want to belong and we want to belong as men and women. And God has invited us to do that. Um, so we could, we, we could stand to grow into his vision for us and how he sees us as the church. I love, it sounds like, and, and you can, you know, kind of correct where I'm mishearing you here, but it sounds like you're really doing an amazing job in this book of addressing fear. And mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, fear is whatever we can be given a fear of is the enemy's way of keeping us quiet and silent and divided. And if we can be divided because of our fear of how we're supposed to relate to one another, then like you said, we're not doing our kingdom work. We're not entering into the family business that we're supposed to be doing that we're invited to do as brothers and sisters. And so I love how it sounds like you're just dismantling all of the, the fear of, you know, uh, mixed gender relationships and all, an abuse too. Cause there is, it's not just fear. I mean, there's legitimate abuse that has happened that and and because of that type of experience in an abusive experience or a unfortunate heartbreaking experience, we can then develop the walls of fear and isolation like you talked about. But I love how you just need to be dismantling all of that so that we can actually live into the fullness of what we were created for. I think that's totally right. Because we we need character and wisdom, not just caution tape. You know, I use the I use the analogy of like a dog that could bite someone. Mm-hmm. Um, but the safest dog uh, is not the dog on the shortest leash. The safest mm-hmm. dog is the one that's the best trained. And so I think the call for us is not just to shorten everybody's leashes so that they don't interact, but for us to think, what is the work we need to, to do to grow in our character and wisdom so that we become safe people to be around? That's, I love that analogy. I, I really want the book now. <laughs> to get it in my hands. I mean, I'm thinking not only as a leader and as a pastor and as someone who has influence over, you know, uh, other people, but even just with my own children, even just in, in raising little humans up into the fullness of their identity and their purpose and their capacity. I mean, this is, this just feels like a very pertinent, relevant, multi-generational, multicultural, um, necessary piece of work I hope so and there's a training we there's a shift in the way we train our children isn't there mm-hmm. like when they're really really little uh, we do say just don't touch just mm-hmm. don't touch don't run in the road don't touch its heart but there's a shift we want to make as they grow older that's not just about conforming to some external standard but actually helping them internalize the reasons behind that so that they themselves have the wisdom to make good choices and can can read the room can look at the traffic can test the temperature of the situation that they're walking into like th- those are maturity questions there is a time for beginner people you know for little people and mm-hmm. for baby believers where rules keeps us safe but Galatians talks about uh, you know the law leading us in tutelage to a place where um, where faith and freedom and character and the fruit of the spirit really again uh, do the work it's much harder work but it's free work it is that's so good. And so as we're kind of wrapping things up and, and obviously I want everyone to grab this book. I can't wait to get my hands on it. I want everyone to grab it and read it. Cause like I said, it's it green and it has knees on it. 
<laughs> if you're wondering what it looks like, I will show you. Look, it's awesome. green. Oh. It has like a bunch of knees on the top. So you'll know what to look out for. <laughs> I love it. That's perfect. And we will, um, are pre-sales available yet? Can we link that? In yeah, they are. The show mm -hmm. notes? Perfect. Sure. Okay. Great. We'll do that. Um, if there was something, and obviously, you know, you are going to dive into this deeper in the book, which I think everyone should just grab and read. But um, for right now, if you could just give a couple practical, someone who says, gosh, this, this resonates with me, whether because I've been through my own hurt or abuse or failed relationship or whatever, and I have closed myself off and siloed myself, or gosh, I'm really just trying to figure out how to relate to one another, to my brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's this whole overarching, you know, issue of sexuality and what do I do with my sexuality? So if there was just a couple, you know, practical words of wisdom, advice, encouragement that you would give uh, for someone who says, I really want to begin walking in this growth and maturity and wisdom, what are just a couple things that, that you might offer? Uh, well, some of them um, have to do with uh, being, I, I want to give people permission and encouragement to be community builders mm -hmm. um, and not and sometimes we just need someone to say, that's actually okay. And not only is it okay, it's good for mm -hmm. you to welcome people, to initiate conversation, to initiate relationship. Um, you can do that. It's okay. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, maybe not now because everybody's kind of on lockdown and social distancing, <laughs> but you can, still, uh, you can still connect with people even if you don't touch them. Um, and and to be unashamed about doing that. We don't have to be wallflowers. This is like church is not a middle school dance where you have to wait for someone. <laughs> to, to, so and, we do. I feel that office though, you know. Yeah. But yeah. you are the church. We are the church. And we get to make it hospitable. Instead of waiting for someone to welcome us, we can be the welcomers in whatever way is appropriate for our community and lifestyle. So part of it is giving permission. I think part of it is the personal work of us um, living a more embodied life and not being squeamish about that we're men and women in bodies. And some, some of us have a lot of work to do uh, about um, just being okay and comfortable that God gave us bodies, that they're good and that we are meant to live in them, love with them, serve the world with them and not, not behave as if only our soul is the, the part that Jesus loves, right? <laughs> if we're going to be the hands and feet with Jesus, we need to be totally okay with being physical beings. Now that's somewhat mental work, um, but there are real practical things that we can do to do that. I think, you know, uh, for many people, yoga has been that kind of thing, but embodied practices, breathing, uh, just paying attention to your breath, uh, that the Holy Spirit in, you know, dwells inside you. Even, even a 10-second breathing practice before we kick into prayer, of breathing in and being in our body can do some work. Um, and I know that seems really abstract in terms of how is this going to help me in the church, but it helps you to be comfortable in your own skin. Mm -hmm. And if we're wanting to be comfortable around the skins of others, part of the work we need to do is getting more comfortable in our own skin. Um, and then there's, there's good reading resources as well. Invite community, get comfortable in your own skin, do some reading. Yeah, that's good. And that's super doable and practical too. Um, I feel like we can easily grab onto those things. And just that invitation to get comfortable in our own skin is, is 
Fantastic. I love it. That was, I love it when we can give something practical and tangible <laughs> and actually doable for people right where they are. Uh, and I think it's work though. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I, I don't want to underestimate the fact that it really, and for some people, particularly if there's a trauma background, it's really hard work. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's so important. And I've seen God do really amazing healing things. Um, as people sort of pay more attention to what their body is telling them and how God is inviting them to process and grow and heal with him. Mm, That's so good. That's really good. I'm really excited to read this book and to just to see the the impact and the influence and the effect that it's going to have. I feel like this is, um, it's really, it's a timely piece of work for us, especially as we see, you know, kind of the direction that, that our culture does tend to go. So that's fantastic. I just want to, on behalf of everybody, just say thank you. Thank you for your time today. And then also thank you for writing this. Thank you for doing the difficult work of, of actually uh, following the, the passion and the influence and the wisdom that God has given you and finding a way in which you can share that with the world. I'm really excited for all of us to get to benefit from that. Thank you so much for having me at the table. I really wish I could be passing you a bowl of ice cream right now. Me too, because I would receive it (laughs) gladly. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Table Leadership Podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to the resources that were discussed at the table today and to connect with today's guest. Remember to subscribe to the Table Podcast and follow along on social media at the Table Leadership. Visit thetableleadership.com to learn more about current courses and coaching opportunities. And finally, you can connect with me, your host, at cionedgerton.com or on social media at cionedgerton. I look forward to the next time that you pull up a seat at the table.